Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. This is Hobbs Q, and I'm, I'm just coming at you to uh, give you a little introduction, because this is part two of our Gambler Fallacy episode, where we discuss Kark and his kind of habit of gambling away thumbs. We were joined in part one by Orcish Librarian, or Bibliovork, on Twitter, and we discussed really this concept of randomness and, and how it applies to kind of how we make decisions as humans and how we see randomness is not really what randomness truly looks like. We ended part one talking about the clustering illusion and the way that humans are trying to basically make patterns out of randomness. It's part of our, kind of our built-in default is to try to want to understand what is going on, to understand the world around us, even if it doesn't make sense. It's to make order out of disorder, order out of chaos. So if you want to head back and listen to part one, you can hear a little bit more. Um, we're going to be picking up right where we left off, continuing with this discussion and kind of how it might affect our own decision making and how we perceive things as humans and kind of moving forward. And I'm sure we'll get back to a little bit of a discussion about Kark. So for now, just hope that you can sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of The Gambler's Fallacy and Kark. I mean, in, in a slightly different way of phrasing this too, with random, sorry to jump hobs, but like, I know folk, you know, when you have an 80% chance for something to happen or 90% chance, and then it doesn't, people think that something went wrong. And it's like, but no, that still has a chance to not happen. And in fact, 10 or 20% is a rather large percentage still. Um, especially, you know, I, I talk about video games as an easy place to see this when you're doing a, a video game and you're picking a lock and you have an 80% chance to pick it, you're going to go through how many locks there, during the course of this game, you're going to fail 80% a number of occasions, just in an actually just, you know, evenly distributed thing. If it, if it hits the odds that you'd think, but even that is a fairly small sample size, even if you do a few dozen there's going to be times where you fail that a lot. And, and, and yeah, and like ev everyone who's played XCOM has <laughs> sworn a blue streak yeah. at their at their Xbox because the 95% to hit shot misses. Yeah. And it, it's where this is where we get into another uh, you know, observed phenomena that comes out of Kahneman and Tversky's work, which they talked about uh the availability bias, which is that so that's actually where I was going to I was going to actually jump to something related to that actually bringing in a real life experiment. Yeah, please um, please go ahead. So that's really funny because that's the exact direction when Alex when we mentioned <laughs> that's where I was heading because there is a um study that we used in studying uh, for schizophrenia that is based on kind of predictions of jumping to conclusions and you set up basically we even do it with computers you don't do it with right in front of but the original version was basically you have a jar of beads and it has some ratio of red beads to blue beads and you ask people how many beads they want to see you pull out a bead you show it to them and after each one they can make a decision about which of the jars did it come from and what you can find is that with certain disorders especially when there is kind of this jumping to conclusions bias which is something that does happen uh, more so with schizophrenia um, in some of the psychosis is that people tend to jump to conclusions. And not only are they ready to guess with fewer number of beads, they also have a high level of conviction in that. So they're taking what is, I mean, it's, it's a little bit different than the ava availability. I mean, it is taking what data is available to mm -hmm. them, but they're willing to make decisions with less data with a strong level of conviction. And it is something that we kind of use to look at this idea that 
you know, with the 50, 50, we, we, we could do different jars. You can set the ratios at different ones and kind of see how much data do people want to see before they make a decision. Yeah. And, and human beings, we're not natural statisticians. Um, we're, we're influenced by what we can remember and we're influenced by the impact that things had on us. And so again, you know, going back to like, you know, I'm sure that if you if you sat down and if I'd sat down and kept a journal of every 95% shot I took in XCOM, I bet I hit those 95% of the time. But I don't remember the ones where it hit. That was what was supposed to happen. It passes without remark. I remember every time I missed a 95% shot because I threw the controller across. I didn't actually throw the controller, but I swore at the Xbox. And so those are very firmly lodged in my memory. And so when I try to think back to my examples that I have stored in my memory of taking 95% shots in XCOM, I can remember the ones that didn't hit. I don't remember the ones that did. And so it influences my perception of what the actual probability was. So this happens, you know, this is, we're talking gambling. So like, this is the thing with poker. The joke is you can remember your bad beats and they have a lot more, they, they stick with you. You remember the times that the person hit the one outer. This is something that happens in magic, you know, you know, you, the, the big joke is, you know, when, Kibler beat Finkel by having the, you know, we have whole memes about the fact that he had the, what was it, gut shot or which, whichever spell it was that he had like two or three copies of. Galvanic Blast. Galvanic Blast, that's right. And yeah. you, you, you have to have that. And so you're going to remember those. You're not going to remember the times that, you know, it was like that, that Finkel made the correct decision to not block. That wasn't really what you were playing to. Or you were going to remember when Gabriel Nassif top-decked Cruel Ultimatum with a called shot because those are low-probability events. They stick in your memory. It's the same thing with poker. Like, I can remember. I, I used to play a decent amount. I could definitely tell you the times that somebody hit card back-to-back -back cards with low probability to beat me. I do not necessarily... I, I can remember some cool hands that I won, um, but probably even the hands that I can remember that I won were probably ones that I went against statistic statistical probability. No, no. And and we see this all the time with, I think, like, you know, the favorite bugbear of magic players everywhere, which is the moto shuffler. And now arena. Yeah. I've got to add that in, too. Yeah, the, the, the arena shuffler. People are convinced that the shuffler is out to get them. People are convinced that the shuffler serves them up bad hands. And again, it's because whenever you get a regular hand, you don't remember that. But every time you get, you know, Posed every time you, you know, you, especially if it happens a couple games in a row, which again is the sort of lumpy randomness that is going to happen during a random sequence. But if I get, you know, mana hosed two or three games in a row, I'm sitting there thinking, God, this, it's the shuffler, it's the shuffler, it's the shuffler. But again, those are the sorts of small sample sizes where you expect to see that kind of variation over the long run. And it's not a sign that the process is non random. Um, and, and, one of the things that always fascinates me about magic players is, is I don't know how much this still happens now, but, you know, back in the days of, you know, tournament magic, back when we were still allowed to, you know, see each other in person and play magic, uh, you would see people who would mana weave their decks, where they would separate the spells into one pile and the lands into the other pile, and then shuffle those two piles together, um, which, to be clear, is cheating. That's not a fair shuffle. That is literally cheating. But people who would do this and would get caught doing it would defend themselves vociferously, saying that this is the best way to shuffle because it gives you what they perceive as a correct random distribution, that I get a land about once every two or three draws. People didn't, at least 
people who I saw doing this and who got caught, they didn't think of it as cheating. They thought this is the way that I get a, a proper random distribution in my deck. When of course, you know, the reality is that that's the farthest you can get from a proper random distribution. A random shuffle, a honest shuffle, will in, will have spaces where you don't draw any lands for seven turns. You draw nothing but lands for seven turns. That's what you expect to happen as the product of an actual random shuffle. And mana weaving is avoiding doing a proper shuffle in order to create this sort of smooth alternation that is what we humans perceive as being the product of a random sequence when in fact it's a profoundly non-random outcome yeah we wanted the actual goal of that was to minimize randomness that's why it's a problem the 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 game and you know that is one of the things both dnd and magic have these elements of randomness in it Otherwise, it would just be kind of chess. It would be a game that, you know, there is a limited finite number of moves. You would take the correct plays. You know, if we, if we had a way to completely eliminate what is randomness, is that's what would happen. Th- that is not what I think makes magic. The randomness is one of the things that makes magic interesting and worth playing. People mm-hmm. don't like true randomness in some ways. And I think that that is something that people aren't good at seeing what true randomness is. And and we also, we just, we fundamentally misperceive what randomness is. And and you can see that whenever you ask people to try to fake a random sequence. Like if you ask someone to, and, and this comes up all the time in psychological studies because it's frequently used as a, as a distractor task, um, that you'll give someone this is a distractor task to try to occupy their brain doing something other than what you're actually studying. And so they'll ask people to, make up a random sequence of numbers from one to 10, uh, you know, randomly pick digits between one and 10. And people, when we're trying to f- generate a random sequence, we always make it too smooth. You know, pe- you know, someone will be sitting there thinking, well, I just did seven, so I shouldn't do seven again. And I won't do seven again until we're about, you know, 10 from now, because that's about the time that seven should come up again. And there aren't enough streaks. There aren't enough gaps. People will use all the digits. They won't leave them out. And it's interesting. I I can't. I wish I could recall where where this was, but I've seen someone did a meta analysis where they looked at um, people trying to generate these fake random sequences and found and found that the more they were distracted, ironically, the more random their their fake random sequences became because it stopped people from trying to smooth out the sequence by consciously trying to make it look random and in the process making it less random. So I'm actually going to tie us into something that that is really funny because of where it came from based on what Alex was just talking about. But the idea behind kind of ways that we can get these large samples is actually to try to generate random numbers that do fit within a certain probability uh, overall pattern. But it's it's how you can mm-hmm. – if you don't have the data that you need, it's ways that you kind of create simulations. So we use this for – say you can use this for like missing data. You can use it if you need to simulate. So like let's look at Lee Sharp doing – simulating football seasons right you're mm-hmm. it's a, the computer way to do it is actually what's funny it's a monte carlo simulation is the, the way that you kind of do this where you're trying to get random numbers so that you can basically fake data sets in a way that you can kind of try to give that you're not going to just get smooth samples but you're taking samples of samples so that you can smooth it out a bit to kind of get what you need mm-hmm. And now I'm going deep in the rabbit hole because <laughs> one of the ways to do this is a Markov chain, like Edgar Markov. Boom. Ooh, la, la. 
we're now really deep into magic history. Here. Uh, this is, I'm so happy with this. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the idea that, you know, like a Markov chain is a type of chain that you use for Bayesian statistics. The idea is you're yeah. trying to kind of smooth out and make random samples so that you can look at distributions. And, um, but I just thought it was funny when I was looking at some of this getting ready for the episode, I saw yeah. the Markov chain. And I was like, you know what? We got Carrick, we got Markov, you know, this is what magic has been doing. This is what we, we've been leading to this episode right here. All of the random samples, all of the randomness in magic has been leading to this point right here. And, and since we're down this rabbit hole, it's actually very difficult to generate genuinely random sequences, um, especially electronically, because at the end of the day, what you're doing is algorithmic and you can come up with things which are very close to random. Mm-hmm. But they're not genuinely. It's very hard to generate genuinely random sequences. Um, there's just not a lot of phenomena that exist in in the in the physical world, let alone the electronical electronic world, that generate genuinely random outcomes. You know, like e- even coins. You know, it's very seldom you get a coin which is genuinely exactly a fifty-fifty coin and whatnot. Um, and you know, one, one of the, like one of the few genuinely random phenomena is radioactive decay. Um, and it's hard to use that. It's hard to use that for practical applications. It's hard to, you know, rig a Geiger counter to something when you want to generate random sequence. It, it's not super practical. <laughs> um, and there's there's actually there's actually a book which is published by the Rand Corporation um, called uh, A Million Random Digits, <laughs> which is exa- and listen, there's truth in advertising. It is exactly <laughs> what it says it is. It is a book of a million random digits. Yep. Um, and the joke among people who work for Rand is that that is not the most boring book uh, that Rand uh, <laughs> publishes by a long shot. And and there's there's a fascinating backstory to this here, where you can read about the the process that was used to generate the million random digits. Um, and essentially, what they did was they built an electronic roulette wheel with a random frequency pulse source um, that was supposed to produce uh, the random digits. And they had to do this a couple times because they found that that even there with this like very elaborate sort of like physical randomization process, there were biases that were, would start to creep into the data set over time. Um, and in particular, there's, there's an example I love um, where they did some, and this was done back in 1947. They did a first block of digits. They said they did a second block of digits. They looked at the second block and found that statistically there was some bias that had come into the block. And it was because uh, the machine had been allowed to run for a month without being tuned. Mm-hmm. So it started and, actually developing you know, again, like, like a warp or something to it. Yeah, like yeah. little little you know patterns were starting to burn themselves into the way that the machine was operating. And it, despite the fact that it was being checked, it hadn't been stopped and retuned. And it, like you know, the, the, it's it's fascinating to me. Well, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about that I didn't get to when when we did this before was this idea that does happen with humans and that it's the seeking patterns. And I oftentimes use this as a way to kind of talk about the normalization of like psychosis. So the experience of hearing voices, um, this even leads into things such as delusions because people are trying to find patterns. And unfortunately, when there is kind of this organization and some of the stuff that comes along with psychosis, we already have talked about this idea that we all are doing this, right? We're all trying to find patterns and things that even when it's not there. Now, add in the experience of, say, hearing voices. 
it makes complete sense to think about that you would be trying to attribute that to something. You know, we've there are studies where you look at, you know, um, like MRI functioning and see that the auditory cortex is actually lit up when somebody is experiencing hearing voices. So the experience is real. Now it is something that is different for them. It's something that is extra. But oftentimes we talk about this idea that people start attributing that to like what that voice is. It belongs to a certain person. Or if if you take sometimes some paranoia, there oftentimes is a kernel of truth within that. There is maybe a precipitating event or something that happened. It's just that people start pulling in unrelated things because they're trying to understand their world around them. They're trying yeah. to bring in this random noise and actually have it make sense to kind of form a pattern or something around it because that's what we do. You know, we talk about this from an evolutionary standpoint was the tiger in the forest, you hear rustling, you had to assume that it was something that was, you know, this is the fight or flight at its simplest. You had to assume that it was something dangerous. And now with a lot of mental health kind of concerns, even if you look at something like hypervigilance with PTSD, you start attributing more and more things to that being dangerous, right? It expands beyond mm -hmm. a rustling is dangerous. It's now you start applying it to other things because you're trying to make sense of a world around you. You're trying to take this data that's coming in. And we've said humans are really good at finding patterns, Yeah, but they're not always actually real patterns that are there. Patterns are how we turn information into knowledge. And I think that this is so relevant now because we're living in an information age. Um, and, and, and as a wise soul once observed, there's a reason that nobody called it the knowledge age. We called it the information age and not the knowledge age. Um, and, you know, we, we all have access to more information, more data now than we, than, you know, any, you know, uh, specifically information about things outside of our own direct experience. We have access to more of that than any other human beings who have ever been alive have had. And so that plays upon the way that we try to take that information and find patterns in it to make it into knowledge, which is understandable to us. And I think that, that you can't look at sort of the rise of conspiratorial thinking in modern society and not see sort of the, the effects of that, that we have more information and we're trying to find ways to make sense of it. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's, there's all sorts of little things in here like I talk about causal fallacies particularly correlation doesn't equal causation because that ties into the philosophy classes that I took when I was going to college um but like that's a that gets used a lot you know this mm -hmm. number goes up this other number goes up therefore the first is the cause of the second and that is that right there doesn't really show you anything those are those are data points but people are very quick because we're looking for patterns. Um, my favorite – so one of my classes, and I talked about this last episode, but just to ex kind of explain, I think, give a good example of how this this fallacy works. One of my classes, we literally the, – the professor had us write, intentional, intentionally write these like logical fallacies, create some to – get a good example. So I like to say uh, you know, a good causal fallacy is that ice cream consumption causes heat stroke. Yep. Because in times of ice, you know, in times of high incidence of heat stroke, there's going to be higher uh, consumption of ice cream. 
because the temperature is higher. There's an underlying cause that's affecting both. But if you're not looking at everything, you're looking at these two significant data points, you're going to create, you're, you're, you're going to draw some false conclusions. So there's a hilarious website that I'm actually is down right now. And I did not know that the person who, who started this website is from Minneapolis, or at least based in Minneapolis, <laughs> which is Tyler, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Vigan or Vigan. Um, that's basically spurious correlations. So <laughs> it is charts where you can plot things that are correlated, right? Like mm -hmm. it just takes events and stuff that are that are correlated and kind of to show this idea that you can find these hilarious spurious correlations that have nothing to actually do with each other. Um, but the numbers are related. So it's that idea that when we look at math of like the idea of um, correlations in particular, you do need to have correlation for causation. It is a necessary part to it. You know, like uh, for unrelated things to cause each other, it just, it, it, you have to have a correlation, but it's not enough. And I think that th that is why it's important to be looking at these things. And as Orkish was saying, with the rise that we're seeing, and I, I've struggled with this in my own kind of career, the rise that we're seeing of conspiracy theories in this information age it becomes very difficult to kind of assess what is delusional, you know, with, with the idea that when we've used to use that as kind of a way to look at maybe a mental health diagnosis, it might not be the most useful thing right now. And I'm, I'm interested to see where we go in terms of research from here, because the idea behind a delusion, especially is that if you present evidence that is contrary to the delusion, that it is either explained away or it is just not accepted. And if you think about the amount of conspiracies that we've kind of seen and the rise of this, it's basically what that looks like. I mean, that's basically what you are describing is kind of situations where people are bringing in data that is completely unrelated and even presenting contrary data is not changing conviction in these beliefs. And I think that that's why particularly now there there's a lot of value in learning about human cognition learning about human decision making learning about the way that we look at and interpret data and statistics because it's all we've reached the point where it's almost a form of mental self defense mm -hmm. um like the, there's a wonderful book by Bob Cialdini called Influence um that describes sort of the way that people can take advantage of our mental shortcuts and our mental heuristics to convince us to do things that we might not otherwise want to do. And it's a book I always recommend to people. Again, I describe it as like a mental self-defense course. It's it's becoming aware of what the shortcuts in our are what the shortcuts are in our cognition and what the shortcuts are in the way that we we look at the world and try to process what we see. Because it then, you know, it never solves the problem. Those, those shortcuts don't go away. And we shouldn't want them to go away because in many cases, to, to Hobbes' point earlier, they're adaptive. They're necessary. They allow us to engage with the world without being paralyzed by decision at every moment. But by understanding them a little bit better, it maybe allows us to kind of forearm ourselves for situations where other people are going to use them to try to take advantage of us or where we're going to use them on ourselves, essentially to to make decisions that we may not be happy with later and kind of the, the kind of the history over the you know the second half of the 20th century 
of people like Kahneman and Tversky doing this work in psychology and then subsequently, you know, like the behavioral economics ec economists, excuse me, the behavioral economists coming in and kind of building off of their work. There was a lot of resistance within within academia at first to these sorts of studies and these sorts of conclusions because people didn't like the idea that it implied that human beings weren't rational, that we didn't <laughs> behave rationally, that we didn't we weren't utility, you know, there was a practical implication, which was that you couldn't just treat everyone as, you know, little utility maximizers. And it called into question, you know, lots of economic theory and the policy prescriptions that flowed out of that. And so that was a source of resistance. But I think also there was just a psychological, we don't like to think of ourselves that no. way. And that's, I, yeah. I find that kind of ironic because that is an emotional reaction to being told that you're not logical. So just a, a little correction, I want to say, it's a emotional objection to being told that you're not people aren't just rational, which I think is really funny and kind of ironic. Yeah, and and I think it's again like if you kind of stop and think about like what were the two sort of like big models up until that point for why human beings do the things that we do. There was kind of this this Freudian psychoanalytic theory that you know, again, I'm grossly oversimplifying for the sake of this discussion, that, but, you know, said that, you know, our, our behaviors and our choices are driven by unconscious desires. And then you had sort of the polar opposite of that, the sort of Skinner, Skinnerian behavioral model of, you know, human behavior that said that, you know, we really are, our, our behaviors are learned, they're the product of repetition and conditioning, where we're trying to maximize utility. And, so sort of the the people like Kahneman and Tversky came in and said, well, no, you know, it's more complicated than that. Like people are trying to maximize their utility, but we make mistakes and we make repeated mistakes and we make mistakes in predictable ways where we do not behave the way that economic models or strict behavioral models would say that we behave. And I think there was a lot of resistance to that, like you said, because it was this idea that, well, you're saying that people are irrational. You're saying that people make bad choices. And the thing to keep in mind, I think, is, again, going back to what Hobbes has been saying repeatedly, a lot of these things, while they're not, may not be rational in a strictly mathematical utility maximizing sense, they're rational in an adaptive sense. These, we call them fallacies or heuristics, but the reason that we do them is because they allow us to cope with the world around us. They allow us to live our lives. You know, you don't want to go to the kitchen in the morning and look in your refrigerator and sit down and make a decision tree of all the food in your refrigerator and all the different things you could cook with it and what the different nutritional value and pros and cons of each one would be in order to decide what you're going to have for breakfast. It's adaptive that we can go to the kitchen, we can say, yeah, I had cereal yesterday and I like that. That was pretty good. And you make yourself a bowl of cereal instead of spending three hours maximizing your breakfast utility. And so I think it helps us to be aware of these things and then to also keep in mind that the reason we do these things is because most of the time they're useful to us and they're helpful to us. They're not signs that we're defective. They're not signs that we're irrational. They're adaptive tools that we use to exist in the environment that we exist and to live our lives in a way that we're not paralyzed by decision, but by being aware of the ways in which they can occasionally cause problems for us and especially the ways in which other people can use them to short circuit our better judgment and to get us to do things which are not healthy or useful for us, that's where you, we can kind of forearm ourselves and try to improve our lives by avoiding those situations where they lead us to make choices that later we're not happy with.
There's actually also a really cool element that, um, so this was from a job perspective, but it also works similarly. So this is a little different than the heuristics, but if you are going to have randomness and random events and you're, you're struggling because as you said, the whole idea behind what we're talking about with the gambler's fallacy, especially when it comes to say like coin flipping is we know that these chains or these, we know that infrequent events happen, right? You know, the 5% mm -hmm. happen. And there's actually a really cool element or arm of chaos theory that is made to take advantage of that. So the idea is that we know that random events happen. So how do we capitalize on random events? So one area that you can think of this in is, um, so let's take something like job searching or uh, getting ahead in a field or let's take the magic community. Let's just keep this as simple as you are. You're a content creator. You make a bunch of connections so that you take a chance that you're going to be able to take advantage of a random event. You just increase the amount of time that you're engaged so that you can hopefully catch one of those random events. You go to a GP, you know that somebody might be there, you get the chance that maybe you meet them, you make a connection with them. You have to be there to do that. We know that that's random that you might get to meet somebody or you, you, know, you kind of say that, wow, I never thought I would get to meet this person and now they're my friend. Well, that's actually capitalizing on chaos or capitalizing on randomness. And there's a whole arm of chaos theory devoted to job searching, for instance, that is about how to network, how to make sure that you are just putting yourself in the best position to have something random happen to you. Yeah. This is, this is, this has been found um, in statistical studies of stock market behavior, for example, that the majority of, and, in a strictly financial sense, people will use this as, as evidence of why it's uh, a fool's game to try to time the market, where in any given year, the majority of stock market gains, gains for the entire year happen in just a handful of days. There are a couple really good days that will account for the majority of the gains in any given year. Most days, you know, the market goes up a little bit, it goes down a little bit, it's, it's fluctuation, but there are occasional, and again, this this goes back to what we've been talking about, that randomness has these bumps in it. It has these big spikes and these big dips. And obviously, stock market behavior is not strictly random. It's influenced by real-world events. But it, it kind of comes back to the same principle where, so when people try to time the market, they say, oh, I'm going to try to get out when I think it's bad and get back in when I think it's going to be good. You run the risk where if you miss, if you're out of the market during those handful of really good days during the year, you can miss most of the gains for the for the entirety of that year no that's just to say those that's an interesting thing too when you and then maybe this is taking the point in a different direction but when you look at those things that have elements of randomness but are not strictly random that are that have in, in essence like human intervention behind it and that's i think where people really try to build you know try to yeah. predict to build their predictive models. And I think that's where people can get in trouble because they are assuming that there's going to be this rational thing or that yeah. they can figure it out. And, and going back sort of to Hobbes's point about putting yourself in a position where you can take advantage of randomness when it happens. And this idea of like, you have to just be present so that if something, if one of those good days is going to happen, you're there to take advantage of it. This is a perspective that I found I've tried to apply to my own life and that it actually helps me in a lot of ways. Um, like when I'm thinking about, you know, what I do for work, um, and, and I suspect that everybody will, will have similar experiences to this. You can have a lot of days where you kind of, you're at the end of your work day and you're looking back at what you accomplished and you're like, 
what did I actually do today that, you know, really made a big difference? You know, did I actually get much done that I feel like produced a lot of value? And, you know, it, it will vary from job to job, but certainly I think there are a lot of jobs where a lot of the days at the end of the day, you kind of look back and you're like, I didn't, you know, I logged eight hours, but what did I actually accomplish? And, but the kind of mental frame shift I had to make was I was like, but you know what? I was present there. So that if it was going to be one of those handful of days during the year where I was going to be the one person who could really contribute something valuable and consequential, I was there in the room so that I was ready for it to happen. And that will happen. And that will happen. Like you'll have those days where you're like, you know what? I was in the meeting and I had the information. I had the idea. The fact that I was there meant that we got a really good outcome. And you have to be there for that to happen. And so you you accept those days where you're just sort of you're just sort of background noise in the universe. You're part of that random stochastic variation because it means that you're at least then in the position where when those serendipitous events occur, you're there and you can try to take advantage of it. I had to make that shift a little bit myself. Most the vast majority of my team's daily work has to be done in the office. We print checks. We deal with physical things. Um, and I've spent the last two weeks working from home because we had some people who were dying, uh, had positive COVID cases on the floor. So they shut the floor down and sent us all home. So I've had to try to support the other half of my team from work because we have half in each other two buildings so that in this case, they're still there to, to do the job. But so trying to support them from home, there isn't a lot I can do. But so there, there were days where it's just sit in the email boxes and if questions come in from other areas, I can handle those while the people in the office are doing work. And so there are days where nothing came in and I didn't get a whole lot done, but I was present and I was there to take that workload off of other people's shoulders if that workload came in. But yeah, it was it was really hard making yeah. that mental shift myself. Well, I, you know, it's it's a cliche, but it's cliched for a reason. A lot a lot of life is showing up. So if you want to I, see, this is my brain when we sit here and do cast like this is to put ourselves even into these, you know, this discussion, we had kind of an outline. We tend to have a rough one, but we tend to not overly put constraints in because we want to be able to take, capitalize on just thoughts that come to mind. Um, and I am so deep down rabbit holes as we're going through this, but now I, I want to go watch pie, um, which is a good, I think if you've not seen it before, it could be a very good, interesting like a fictional representation of kind of everything that we've been talking about today. Because this is an audio cast, I need to clarify how, how do you spell pie? Yes. (laughs) PI this time. We're not actually talking about the food is as much as we'd like to talk about food. Okay. The the mathematical construct. If, if you were talking about the other one and you were like, I want to just go stare at a pie. Also, I I totally would have understood that. And, it sounded, you know, not too bad to me. So <laughs> I just, I just need to clarify. I'm like, is there a show just called Pie? Because I'm interested. No, this is I, actually Darren Aronofsky's first film. The the, so. the moment you said that, though, it became a thing on Netflix. There's already like five seasons of Pie, which is just slow pans, slow yep. camera pans on on you know oh. pastries. When you said slow pans, see now my brain was like, wait, like a spring form or. Do you just uh, mean like a cake pan? See, so see, see, now, see 
I'm I'm literally looking out the window right now to see if a Netflix executive is about to rappel through <laughs> and and hand me a development uh, deal for my show that we just we just look at pie. Yeah, but it's like the it's like the call me Netflix for 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 Christmas only it's just pie. Yeah, yeah exactly. Who, oh. Tell me you wouldn't watch that. Oh, certainly. I would watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a TV that's off most of the day. When I'm sitting here, I just put a pie on in the background. <laughs> It'd be perfect. This is where we really need smell vision, though. Yeah, you oh. need the wafting in. Well, th- this we, we we've now meandered quite a bit. Um, we started with Kark, and you know I think that this it's so ending on smell vision. Yeah, it's smell vision. That's where we're kind of ending up. But I mean, but you know what? I feel like this was. A to be expected level of variance yeah. within within the sample size was, that is this one podcast. I was trying to figure out how to make that joke, but you beat me to it. Well, I guess that does take oh. us down the road. We've kind of come back all the way to Kark, uh, our favorite goblin, at least mm-hmm. for this week. Um, we want to thank uh, Orkish for visiting us again and not being, you know, in immense incredible pain because we were going to record with you in person the very first time you came and as in your role as an official librarian i believe believe me this is this is a nice change for me too this this was much easier this time and um, yeah. uh you know i just i encourage everybody out there you know don't don't bet any thumbs that you're not willing to lose i hope that's what people take away from this right make sure that you have a supply of thumbs if you're going to keep going double or nothing yeah and thank you all for joining. And um, don't forget to check out Grinding Coffee Company. So uh, they are a LGBT black-owned coffee roaster that is designed specifically for gamers. They're finishing up their Kickstarter right now. And if you go to our site, we have paired with them. You can use our code. It's on our Twitter. Um, you can just get a link directly to it. You get 13% off coffee with them. So once again, thank you, Orkish, for being here. And I assume that you'll be back in the future. That's thank a, you so thank you assumption. so much for having me. And that's our show for today. You can find the hosts on Twitter. HotsQ can be found at HotsQ, and Alex Newman can be found at Mel underscore Chronicler. Send any questions, comments, thoughts, hopes, and dreams to at GoblinLorePod on Twitter, or email us at GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support your friendly neighborhood gobsmugs, the cast can be found at Patreon.com slash GoblinLorePod. Opening and closing music by Vindergotten, who can be found on Twitter at Vindergotten or online at Vindergotten.bandcamp.com. Logo art by Steven Raphael, who can be found on Twitter at Steve Raphael. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Tipsters of the Coast as part of their growing Vorthos content, as well as magic content of all kinds. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.